Let's pray. Lord, before we take communion, we want to prepare our hearts. We want to thank you for your sacrifice because none of us would be here apart from what you've done for us. And so we prepare our hearts, we quiet ourselves, and we remember. I encourage you to get your bread and your drink or your juice, whatever it is, and put it in your hands. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took some bread and broke it and said that this bread was a symbol of his body that was broken on our behalf. And he commanded us to eat this bread, to remind us of his brokenness, his body that was literally nailed to a tree. And the wrath of God was poured out upon him, not because of anything he did, but because of our sin. And we remember that sacrifice. Church, receive the body of Christ. And this juice is a symbol of his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Because we know without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And it was innocent blood that was shed. So church, receive the blood of Christ. Jesus, we obey your commands. We remember that great sacrifice. And we love you for that. You are such a good, good God such a good king, such a good friend. And all God's people said, amen. amen. If you get your Bibles out this morning, and if I could have somebody turn this monitor on, that would be great for me. So, um, anyways... Get your Bibles out. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Matthew chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. We're going to continue our series called Different. And it says this. Matthew chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, some of you may recall, uh, I spent the first really formative years of my ministry uh, working with college students. And early on, within the first year of, of my ministry in until I really left that ministry, I began to notice a pattern in the response of, of students to the truth claims of Jesus Christ and his gospel message. 
and granted, this was, you know, 20 plus years ago, but most students believed that God or some form of God existed, and they had heard of Jesus Christ. But only a few were even open to the possibility of turning their lives over to him to gain eternal life. Because I presented the gospel in such a way that, do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to live eternally? Well, here's God's terms. Meet God in his terms, and this is what you get. But what was really amazing was that most of the students were content that the lives that they lived were good enough to get them into heaven. Now, it became obvious to me that the various religious systems that these students had been raised in as children, whether it was a, a Catholic background or a Protestant background or just even a, they had no real religious background, these religious systems, I call them, had inoculated them to the gospel message. They'd gotten just enough religion, and they didn't want any more. They were familiar with it, and they were, thought they were at least, in good standing with God. And they were deceived. Now, the statement that our Lord makes in verse 5 of Matthew 5, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This was a shocking statement to the audience that heard him say it. As with the first two Beatitudes, Jesus is calling for something absolutely foreign to their thinking. And to be frank with you, it's foreign to our thinking as well. Now, his audience knew how to be spiritually proud, to be spiritually self-sufficient, and they too thought that they were good with God. And they too were deceived like the college students thousands of years later. And let me show you why this was so shocking to them. The beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. A little over a half a century before Jesus was born, in roughly 63 B.C., history tells us that Pompey, the great general, had annexed or freed Palestine for Rome. And so any sort of Jewish independence had come to an end. That was when Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabean Revolt, all of that happened. That, that was over. And so from then on, Israel, or the land, was ruled partly through a series of kings. There were Herodian kings appointed by Caesar. In addition to these different Herodian kings, he gave them governors, we would call them. And the most famous of the governors was, of course, to us, is Pilate, whom Jesus spoke with. Now, at the same time, virtually all other land with which the New Testament is concerned was also under the subjection of Rome. This is important to understand this. Because it was an oppressive, sad day for the Jewish people. They absolutely despised being under Roman rule. And Rome left such a bitter taste in their mouths that they, and this is funny, they struggled to admit in the midst of being under Roman rule 
that they were even under Roman rule. Remember this? When Jesus was talking to the Jewish leaders, he said this in John 8, 32. You shall know the truth, and what? The truth shall set you free, right? Do you remember how they responded? <laughs> we are Abraham's seed, and we were never in bondage to any man. I mean, you want to talk about denial and living in denial. Now, the life of Jesus falls within the time of a nation that is in bondage to Rome. At the same time, there was a movement in the hearts of the Jews to believe that the Messiah was coming to establish his kingdom. They were looking for him. Now, do you remember the four political and social religious groups at the time of Jesus? You had the Zealots, they were the social activists. You had the Sadducees, they were your liberals. You had the Pharisees, they were the conservatives. And you had the Essenes that were the isolationists. Now, each group had their own expectation of their Messiah. The Essenes wanted a, a, a more of a, a, a military Messiah. Actually, Zealots wanted a military Messiah. The Sadducees wanted a materialistic Messiah. The Pharisees wanted a miraculous Messiah. And the Essenes wanted a, a monastic Messiah. But Jesus said this, I'll give you what? A meek Messiah. Because blessed are the meek. They inherit the earth. My kingdom is not going to be militaristic, materialistic, miraculous, or monastic. My kingdom is going to be for the meek. And to them, to his audience at that time in history, under that heavy oppression, with what they had been reading and been told for hundreds or thousands of years, I'm sure they were like, huh? So let's talk about the value of meekness. The value of meekness. So since his kingdom is for the meek, it's important that we get a biblical understanding of meekness. Now, it's a word that we don't really understand, but we'll get into that in a moment. But really, what is meekness? Well, it is valued highly, very, very highly in both the Old and New Testaments. In Psalm 25, 9, the Old Testament says, The meek will he, meaning God, guide in justice, and the meek will he teach his way. So we see right here that the meek are the kind of people God identifies with as he guides and teaches them his way. Now there's a renowned Hebrew scholar by the name of Wilhelm Gesenius. And he says that the meaning of the Old Testament word for meekness involves a lowly, pious, and modest mind. Now catch this, because this is foreign to our thinking, which prefers to bear injuries rather than return them. In the New Testament, we find that meekness is what he expects of his kingdom people, because blessed are the meek, they inherit the earth. But it's the same thing throughout all the New Testament. Paul's message to the Ephesians, Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you that you walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. And how is that? with all lowliness and meekness. Clearly, God's kingdom is for the meek. 
Now, when you think of the word meek, you might understand it better if you think of the word humble. Walk with all humility, with all gentleness, with all patience. Therefore, I think we can conclude that, that meekness, this humility, it's not only the opposite of pride, but also of stubbornness, fierceness, vengefulness. The meek person will not expect to be always treated with respect and reverence. Consequently, he or she is also patient in reception of injuries with the belief that God will vindicate him or her. Now, you want to talk about some countercultural thinking. If you separate yourself even from that time frame that Jesus spoke these words to those people, they were looking for a very specific, almost an aggressive military Messiah. Take it to today, to what's going on in the world, and even in your own life. When you are offended, what is your response? I mean, let's face it. We're an independent nation that was born out of independence. We have an independent spirit. We have rights, and boy, do we like to claim our rights and defend our rights to the injury of others. That is not the behavior of a citizen of God's kingdom. The heart of the meek is too great to be moved by little insults. Let that sink in. The heart of the meek is too great to be moved by little insults. In fact, it looks upon those who offer insults, and let's face it, in this world, you're going to be insulted. You're going to be criticized. It looks upon those who offer insults and who are offensive. It looks upon those people with pity. Now, this is a clear contrast to the person that is constantly offended. Do you know somebody that is constantly offended? And it may be even you. But the person that is constantly offended, that they suffer every little insult, they can't let anything go past them. It just sits there on their shoulder. I.e., you have a chip on your shoulder is this kind of person, okay? And they let every little insult just throw them off. It throws them to the ground. It knocks them off their pace. It raises this storm of passion within them to the point that they are at the mercy of every person that chooses to agitate him or her. That is not meekness. That is not the behavior of someone who is a citizen of God's kingdom. To put it another way, the meek person is almost impossible to offend. That is hard. Now, meekness is different from being broken in spirit. Broken in spirit is negative. That's the first point. You're poor in spirit. You're broken because of your sin. It results in mourning. I mourn for my sin. Meekness is positive because it results in a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I'll explain this as we go on through the sermon. But I want you to see the beauty of the logical progression of our Lord's sermon. Since meekness follows being poor in spirit and mourning we can safely conclude that meekness comes out of 
those hearts that are broken in spirit and mourning for their sin. So if you are not still, even year, let's say you, you, you've been a Christian for 30 years, if you are still not broken over your sinfulness, if you are still not mourning over your sin and, and really confessing your sin, then you're not going to be meek. See what I'm saying? Then you're not going to hunger for righteousness. Again, since meekness follows being poor in spirit and mourning, we can safely conclude that meekness comes out of those hearts that are broken in spirit and mourning for their sin. Now, the word meek actually comes from a Greek word, which means mild, gentle, and soft. And I want you to hear me on this. The idea is a person who is gentle, mild, tenderhearted, patient, submissive, so on and so forth. But it is not, and I say this again, it is not Weakness. In fact, it's the byproduct of strength because it's a byproduct of a self-emptying or of self-humiliation because it is a brokenness before God. That comes first. It's a byproduct of a mourning over your sin. Now, in classical Greek, and this is what you want to, want to remember, the word meek is understood as the taming of a powerful animal. In particular, a, 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 a taming of a lion or think of a, of a horse. So it is power under control. Power under control. That is what meekness is. So it is mild and gentle and soft. It is the United States versus the Taliban. All the power in the world, we could have wiped them out with one bomb. But we're meek. We, all that happened, 9-11, right? Humble nation. And we responded by not wiping them off the face of the planet, which we could have done very easily. Okay? So think of meekness as that you're gentle, mild, and, and soft, and patient, and tenderhearted, but you also are very powerful, and it's that power that is under control. Now, Proverbs gives a, a beautiful picture of meekness. It says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes his city. So in other words, we see that to rule your spirit, to control your temper, to control your words, that's meekness. So that makes meekness the opposite of violence. It's the opposite of vengeance, because it is a meek person who has died to self. Do you see that? It's not about self. The meek person never worries about his own injuries. Do you know how freeing that is? To not be consumed by your hurts? The meek person never worries about his own injuries. He bears no grudges. He never defends himself. And here's why. Because he knows he doesn't deserve anything. This is why a meek person is slow to anger. Meekness is what Jesus Christ said characterizes his people and his kingdom. And let me go back. Why can't a meek person, I'll develop this idea <clears throat> further, but 
Why does a meek person never defend himself? Because first of all, they're what? Poor in spirit. They are unable to please God. But when they come to God in his terms, what does he give them? The kingdom. They're still broken over their sin, and God comforts them. So because of that, and the gracious gift from God, they don't deserve any of that. <clears throat> they know that. It's a gift. So they don't defend. Everything they have comes from God. And I don't think that you're going to understand this until you study it on your own, because that is, we are never taught that. It is so foreign to our thinking. We we're raised in an independent nation that I have rights, and I will cling to those rights. We have even in the church the, the, the counselors and psychologists that say love self. And no, he's saying, you know, meek people, they have, have died to self. They have emptied themselves. They have humiliated themselves. They, they gladly take the position of humility because that's what Jesus Christ did. Come to me, all you who are what? Weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find what? You'll find that rest, a comfort for your souls. Because you can come to me because I am what? Gentle and humble in spirit. He's approachable. That's power under control. If God were to claim to love self and to claim his rights, we would cease to exist. But meek people, no, they know that. They know they deserve nothing. And it's meekness, this, this humility, that is, is a, the character trait of people that are in God's kingdom. Now, let me give you some snapshots of meekness, some snapshots of meekness. But what does meekness look like? Okay, well, the Old Testament is full of examples. This may help you maybe grasp what meekness looks like in real life. It looks like Abraham, who even though he was given the covenant promises from God to inherit the promised land, right? Remember that? He brought along as an extra baggage his nephew Lot. And he gave Lot the first choice of the land. It looks like Joseph who even though second in command of Egypt did not exact revenge upon his brothers who sold him into slavery when they came before him begging for grain. It looks like Moses, who according to Scripture was the meekest man on the earth, the humblest man. No one was more humble than Moses. And he did not defend himself when his sister Miriam and Aaron questioned his marriage to a Cushite woman. It looks like David, King David, who had the opportunity to take the life of the illegitimate King Saul, but didn't, even though Saul was seeking to kill him. Meekness is not asserting your rights or getting what you are due. It is power under control. But the best example of meekness in the New Testament is, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 24, we read this. And this is a, 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 such a powerful example. For to this you've been called, Peter's saying. Do you understand me? 
Peter's saying to his audience, and I would say to you, it is for this that you've been called. This is why you're a believer. Now watch this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. In other words, you are called to suffer. And that fits with reality because is life fair and equitable and good? No, it is not fair. We live in a fallen world. You should expect hardships and suffering and difficulty and trials and tests because this is to which you were called. How did our Lord respond? Who, by the way, was completely innocent. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued and trusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, here's a thought for you, and maybe you really need to slow down and put your Bibles down and turn up the volume and listen to this. But Jesus committed no sin. I mean, there may be times in your life when you have a situation where you are innocent, you've done nothing wrong, but you're really never purely and truly innocent. This is not true of our Lord. He was purely, completely, 100% innocent. Thus, he never did anything wrong. You follow me so far? So whatever anybody accused him of, logically then was only false accusation. Whatever anybody punished him for, it was grossly misplaced. Whenever they abused him, they were way out of line. And whenever they slandered him, they were misguided. Whenever they mocked him, it was a lie. He never did anything wrong. And even though he never deserved any criticism... When it came, he never fired back in defense of himself. And finally, when he suffered, he didn't threaten. Just think of this. At his betrayal and his arrest, he said this in Matthew 26, 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. And I'm going to put this into context for you. In 2 Kings 19.24, there's a story of, of one angel. This is what this one angel did. 2 Kings 19.24. And that night, the angel of the Lord, singular, went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. So here's some perspective. A Roman legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers. Now that doesn't include, by the way, any cavalry. This is just the foot soldiers. So if I use those numbers, 12 legions of angels would have been 72,000 angels, and they were at Christ's disposal to defend him. And one of those angels wiped out how many soldiers? 185,000 soldiers. And yet our Lord never used it for himself because he never did anything to defend himself. That's the point. He never defended himself. Folks, that is power under control. That is meekness. And here's the thing. Meekness is a trust in God to defend. And because we don't know God, 
we don't trust him, we think we have to defend ourselves. And that's not how it works. Now, watch this. While Jesus never defended himself, he aggressively defended his father. Remember, I said meanness is not weakness. It's not timidity. It's not passive-aggressive, typical male behavior. That is not meekness. Remember this. When they desecrated his father's temple, all the, you know, he cleansed the temple because of all the, the corruption with the leadership, the religious leadership, and the, and the money that they were making taking advantage of poor people, he made a whip and started beating them to cleanse the temple. And he did that not once, but he did it twice. So meekness is not a passive acceptance of sin, but it is an anger under control. Think of it as a holy indignation. We find Jesus blasting the hypocrites. He condemned the false teachers and false leaders of Israel. He fearlessly uttered divine judgment upon people. And yet, what does the Bible say about him? He was meek. He was humble. So meekness is not impotence. Meekness is power used only in the defense of God, never in the defense of self. So think of it this way. When you look at yourself and you see your sin, you become broken in spirit. This in turn leads you to mourn over your sin. And because of your sin, you know you deserve nothing. And anything you receive is an act of grace and mercy from God. So because I deserve nothing, everything that's been given to me is from his hand, there's nothing to defend. Therefore, I don't defend myself. Have you ever done that? Someone is angry at you and they're coming at you? Just don't respond. Don't defend. It'll throw them for a loop, I guarantee you that, because they won't be used to that. See, the meek person sees the holiness of God and says, I will die defending his holy name. I'll defend God. I won't defend myself. Now, here's why. It is the meek, it is only the meek who inherit the earth. This is why this is attached to meekness. Remember what I said earlier? What is ruling your spirit? Controlling your temper, your anger? That's meekness. And it takes great strength to have self-control. And it was the lack of self-control which ruined Alexander the Great, who in a fit of uncontrolled anger, in the middle of a drunken debauchery, he hurled a spear at his best friend and killed him. No man can be in control of others until he has learned to control himself. The man, who, however, who gives himself into the complete control of God will gain this meekness and will indeed then be qualified and be enabled to what? Inherit the earth. Remember, God gave man dominion over the earth. And when you become a believer and you live a life characterized by meekness, you enter the kingdom and you come into that original inheritance promised in Genesis. And that is why happy are the meek. Now, I want to spend a moment as I transition to the final portion of this sermon talking about uh, conditions. Yeah. 
conditions and character traits. Because as you study the Sermon on the Mount, you discover a repeatable pattern of conditions for entering his kingdom and character traits of those who are in his kingdom. So let's think of conditions and character traits. Now, conditions are who you are when you come into the kingdom. And what's the first thing that you are when you come into the kingdom? Blessed are the poor in spirit, okay? Now, the character traits are how you will be as you continue to live in the kingdom. You follow me so far? Let me show you. Let's look at the first four Beatitudes real quick. To enter the kingdom, you must be poor in spirit. That's the condition. And as you live in the kingdom, you continue to recognize your spiritual bankruptcy. That's the character trait. And think about your life. As a believer, you should be almost daily reminded of your, your sin, your spiritual poverty. And is that true in your experience? You, 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 there's these habits of sin you just can't break, and it's just that's your condition. And you're broken over it. And that's a lifestyle, and that's a good thing. In order to enter the kingdom, you must mourn over your sin. That's a condition. And as you live in the kingdom, you'll continue to mourn over your sin, i.e., you confess your sins. That's the character trait. In order to enter the kingdom, you come in meekness. That's the condition. And as you live in the kingdom, meekness continues to be your lifestyle. Again, that's what Paul said. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling in all what? Humility, meekness. It's a lifestyle. Now watch this. In order to enter the kingdom, you must hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's a condition. And as you live in the kingdom, guess what? You'll continue to hunger and thirst for more of that same righteousness. That's the character trait. This beatitude... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is going to be a hard one to hear. Okay? This is going to be hard to hear because it's, it's, it's difficult. Let me explain what I mean by that. What does the life of a citizen of God's kingdom look like? Well, it's a life characterized by continual recognition of my spiritual poverty, continual mourning over my sin, continual meekness or humility, and continual hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. These are not one-time experiences. These are character, they're, they're character traits. They characterize, they are the lifestyle of citizens of God's kingdom. This is what your life looks like. So let's follow our Lord's reasoning. When you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy before God, your poor in spirit, you mourn over your sin. And when you see your sin and mourn, you compare yourself to a holy God it is. I can, God, you're so holy. I am so sin. That's the contrast. So it's only natural that you're humbled before God because he's already given you what? Even though I'm, I'm, I'm poor in spirit, you've given me the kingdom of heaven. And I mourn for my sin and you comfort me. I'm humbled before you, and you give me what? The earth. And that then, you say, I want that life. 
I want that righteousness. Because in your humility, you realize that the only hope you have of ever sharing in God's righteousness is going to come from His gracious hand. And so you hunger, you thirst after His righteousness. And folks, if you do not hunger and thirst after righteousness, you are not a citizen of God's kingdom. <clears throat> so what's the condition? The character trait? The condition is I hunger and thirst. And what's the character trait? I continue to hunger and thirst. And it's going to be hard for you to hear this because this is a difficult beatitude. Because we're going to talk about it right here. It's what we call I'm starving. I'm starving. I'm going to take a moment and talk about hunger and thirst. We all know that food and water are necessities for life. You enjoyed food and water or some sort of food and beverage yesterday. And you have an abundance of food and water in America. But without food and water, folks, we don't exist. So naturally, the drive for food and water, I mean, it's strong. It is intense. Now, famine came to Rome in 436 B.C. Do you know what it did to the people at that time? It caused thousands of people to literally throw themselves into the Tiber River and drown themselves rather than die of starvation. It seems like there has never been a time in our world without famine. All Europe suffered famine in the years 879, 1016, and 1162. In the 19th century, you know this, famine struck Russia, China, India, Ireland. How about the 20th century? Ethiopia, parts of Africa, India suffered from famine. Thousands dying of malnutrition. But what does Matthew 5, 6 say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This beatitude speaks of the same intense desire as the desire for food and water. It is a strong desire that is then, please hear me on this, the continual driving pursuit of the citizen of God's kingdom's life. And I want you to see what Jesus is saying here. You need righteousness like you need food and water. In truth, anybody coming into his kingdom and continuing to live in his kingdom, you hear me? The condition and the character trait? If you're going to come into his kingdom and you're going to continue to live in his kingdom, he has as great an appetite and thirst for righteousness as a man does for food and water. So you have to ask yourself the hard question, is that true of me? Well, why do I need that hunger? Because you will never live spiritually without his righteousness. And for as horrific as it is to see someone die of hunger, it's even more disturbing to see the horror of a spiritual hunger that goes unfulfilled, i.e., hell. So the driving desire of our lives is to be his righteousness. It is not your phone. 
and watching videos on your phone. It's not watching TV. It is not your job. It is not some relationship. It's not the material things of this world. Let me illustrate this, what this intense desire is to be in your life. This is a true story, a book written by Major Gilbert entitled The Last Crusade. It's about the British liberation of Palestine in World War I. In that book, you'll find a story that illustrates the hunger and thirst that Jesus talks about in this beatitude. The major wrote this, driving up from Beersheba, a combined force of British, Australians, and New Zealanders were pressing on the rear of the Turkish retreat over arid desert. Now, the attack, it outdistanced its water carrying the camel train. So the attack got way in front of the water supply. The water bottles were empty. The sun blazed pitilessly out of a sky where the vultures wheeled about expectantly. Our heads ached, writes Major Gilbert, and our eyes became bloodshot and dim in the blinding glare. Our tongues began to swell. Our lips turned a purplish black and began to burst. They needed water. Their body was craving water, and they didn't have water. Now, those who dropped out of the column were never seen again, but the desperate force struggled on to Syria. Now, there were wells at Syria, and they had been unable to take that place by nightfall. Thousands were doomed to die of thirst. And so we fought that day, writes Major Gilbert, as men fought for their lives. We entered Syria's station on the heels of the retreating Turks. And the first objects which, we, which met our view were the great stone cisterns full of cold, clear, drinking water. In the still night air, the sound of water running into the tanks could be distantly heard, and it's maddening in its nearness. And yet not a man murmured when orders were given for the battalions to fall in two, two deep, facing the cisterns. And he describes the stern priorities. As you got the water first, the wounded, those on guard duty, and then company by company. Folks, it took four hours before the last man had his drink of water. And in all that time, they had been standing 20 feet from a low stone wall on the other side, at which were thousands of gallons of water. I believe, Major Gilbert concludes, that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on the march from Beersheba to Syria Wells. If such were our thirst for God and for righteousness, for His will in our life, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich in the fruit of the Spirit would we be? Here is Satan's counter to Jesus' truth claim. Because if you're on, believe in Jesus, if you listen to truth, you're on the side of truth. Hunger after the things of this world. Pursue possessions, popularity, pleasure. Because as there, the world says, you'll find happiness. In fact, the best place in the world to find happiness at this point in time in history is the United States of America because we grant you the right to pursue happiness. The problem is, is that people never find true happiness in this world. As long as you define happiness as the pursuit of things in this world, you're never going to find true happiness. 
Happiness, Jesus says, is brokenness, mourning, meekness, and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. John Nelson Darby, a leader of the Plymouth Brethren Movement, he, he wrote this. It's very true. To be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what is God's heart towards me. When the prodigal son was hungry, what did he do? He went to feed on the husks. But when he was starving, what did he do? He went to his father. And that is what Jesus is talking about. It's a kind of desperate hunger that only God can satisfy. And I can't put it any more simpler than this. The only real happiness in life is to be right with God. That's the only time you will be happy. Now, I don't want you to overlook God's responses to each of these beatitudes. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth, and they shall be filled. Now, isn't that great? Does it not show the generosity of our God? In fact, think about this for a moment. Add all those up. What do you get? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be filled. Do you know what you get? You get everything. That's God's plan, to give you everything. It's going to be yours. And this is Jesus' point. The world would have you work like mad, work tirelessly to gain all the things that Jesus says, if you just come into my kingdom on my terms, I'm going to give it to you in the end anyways. When you understand this, and maybe there's a quiet moment in your home right now, that should be very, very, very freeing to you. Let me show you. In Matthew 5, verses 40 and 42, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, why would anyone in their right mind give their cloak to one who is suing them for their tunic? Why would I give my house to anyone who is suing me for my car? Think of it that way. Why would I do that? You know what? If you think that way, that shows how you've been formed by the world because that is the wrong question. What is the right question? It is this. What do I care? You say, huh? You're going to get it all in the end anyways, right? In God's kingdom, you're going to have all that you need. And already in this world, if you're a believer, you're in the kingdom right? The reign of God in your hearts. You're already in the kingdom, and he is blessing you. We all have more than what we need, right? You're going to get it all in the end. So the question is, well, why would I do that? It's like, well, what do I care? I get it all in the end anyways. 
Don't try and center your life around your possessions now because it'll all be yours in the end. Have you ever thought that way? But that's what it says, right? I get the kingdom, I get comfort, I get the earth, and I'm happy, I'm satisfied, I'm filled. You get it all. And the irony of the message, of this message, to the Jews in the audience was that they were working so hard for all those things. They wanted the kingdom, right? They wanted comfort because they were oppressed so hard by Rome. They were going to have an eternal kingdom. Therefore, they'd inherit the earth. And they wanted to be satisfied. They wanted to be filled. And they wanted that from their Messiah. And what did they do? He offers it to them. And what did they do to his offer? They turned it down. Were they negotiating with him? Trying to get a better deal? The Lord said this, if you just come on my terms, I'll give you the whole thing. It's the same thing he says in Matthew 6, 33. You know this verse, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's the same thing I'm talking about. Guess what? And all these things will be added to you. You get it all. If you come to God in his terms, it's all yours anyways. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're listening to this, or you're here this morning, it's all yours. Now, do you find that satisfying? No, you should, because that's exactly what the word filled means. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. It means to be absolutely satisfied. It's what the Greek word means. So, folks, God not only wants to make you, God not only wants to make us happy. He also wants to make us satisfied, absolutely, one hundred percent satisfied. So happy are the satisfied. Happy and satisfied are the hungry. And so, what I want you to do is ask yourself this question. Well, how hungry then am I? How much do I thirst for righteousness? Pastor Phil Newton addressed this question, and I want to read a quote from him. He writes this. There is deep soul searching in this beatitude. Do you understand what I'm saying here, why this is hard to hear? We must be honest with ourselves. Forget the fact of what you profess. Forget for the moment that you attend church regularly, that you have Christian friends. What is it that means more to you than anything else? What is it that you love? What is it that you must have? What is it that drives your life, consumes your thoughts, directs your impulses? What you hunger for reveals the character of your heart. Now, you can mask your outward performance You can churn out Christian lingo and put on a happy face, but you know what you really desire. Multitudes flock into churches each week with Christian masks that hide the reality that their appetite is not for Jesus Christ, but for the things of this world. But Jesus tells us that only those who have the spiritual appetite to hunger and thirst for righteousness will find satisfaction. Everybody turn to Luke 18, verses 18 to 25. I want to talk to you about 
unconditional hunger. Because I believe this is us. Luke 18, verses 18 through 25. Story of the rich young ruler. It says, And a ruler asked him, meaning Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You see that? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the rich young ruler had a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Jesus offered him the kingdom of God, and he turned down Jesus' offer. The question is why? Well, he was extremely rich, obviously. But here's the point. He wanted the kingdom of God and his riches. His hunger and thirst was conditional. He was never filled. What about you? Do you want the kingdom of God in your pride? Do you want the kingdom of God in your lust? Do you want the kingdom of God in your gossiping mouth? If you really hunger and thirst after righteousness, it will be unconditional. Let's pray. Father, as we close this, with this song this morning, we thank you for your words to us. Holy Spirit, do your work. Build up the body of Christ and bring conviction where conviction is needed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.